carnivorous couch Shit happens once a week It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak Carnivorous couch With Brady and Rob Hi everybody, hi everybody, hi everybody, and welcome to another episode of Carnivorous Couch, the spoilerful podcast where we do a film a week from two film geeks. We have me, Rob, as per usual, and we have... Brady Larson? No guests, just the love between the two hosts this this time around. Um, that's the thing from Loveline back in the 90s. It's like, we don't have any guests, the guest is the love that will be found between the two hosts. Um, anyway, this week we did the 2014 film, IMDb listed as 2013 for whatever reason. It was reviewed on, uh, Roger Ebert's website in April of 2014, so almost a year ago. Um. Yeah, probably a festival thing. It yeah. Bowed at one of the 2013 festivals. Yes. I, I believe it was a Sundance Darling. It's a very good movie that I feel went highly overlooked because... I don't know. It was talked about in all the film magazines. Ooh, everybody, ooh, Blue Ruin, ooh. And then there was a few scattered reviews and then uh, no mention of it <laughs> for the rest of the year. Um, but it was one of my favorites from the year so far as we're gearing up for our top 10 of 2014. I've done my best to watch as many as I could, but then I was watching Better Call Saul. And then, like, because I do my, my TV watching in second bed every morning. I get out of second bed. I get out of first bed. I make coffee and then I lie in second bed and watch. Uh, well, for a while I was watching about a movie a morning, uh, and if I had to cut it up into pieces, well, fine, fine, that's fine with me. Uh, lots of people don't like watching that way, but I, for one, don't care if the movie's good. It'll hold. Woo! Over time. Um, so, but now I've been watching Breaking Bad because I got to the eighth episode of Better Call Saul and uh -huh. was like, I want more of that universe. Yeah. So once I get all the way through Breaking Bad, which will probably be somewhere around Tuesday, I'm currently uh, almost done with the third season, um, then we'll go ahead and uh, I'll start watching the last couple movies. Brady's told me i got to watch Only Lovers Left Alive. Oh, yeah, you got to see that. And, uh, well, the reason that we uh, watch Blue Ruin is because I've been trying to get Brady to watch Blue Ruin, and the fact that we're on the, we did it on the cast pretty much makes it so. It is so. So, make it so... <sighs> it's been a shitty week, huh, Brady? Uh, yeah, I think... Well, yeah, I mean, like, I didn't have any... Exhausting. Nothing bad happened to me, but everybody... Uh, you know, every time I go in the elevator at work and I'm just talking to people, you know, the, the consensus was pretty strong of, this week must end. Oh, sort of, yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree. Uh, it, it's been not a catastrophic week, but one just drenched with a... A sense of anxiety and dread. Well, a few cata catastrophes. Um, I mean, just like random deaths. I know there were some in the news story that were just really strange. I didn't read the news because I had enough just depressive stuff going around in my environment. Uh, Farley's East, which is a coffee shop that, you know, I um, I frequent. A couple of regulars uh, died in a house fire. Oh, Jesus. On 24th and Grand in Oakland. Uh, so that was very sad. Um, our friend C at Missouri Lounge, who we play pool with, his his son died of a random heart attack at 28. Oh my God! Yeah, it's just uh, yeah. I mean, just out in the ethos, it's been a bummer. Anyway, I just wanted to, you know, say to those the people who who know them, and and whatnot, uh, if they listen to this, you know, our hearts are with you. 
And uh, yeah, absolutely. So yes, bringing it down for the uh, the movie, which is also kind of a downer. I mean, it's kind of a, a bleak, hillbilly, gothic, just sort of sad movie. I guess I'll I'll roll this right into the plot synopsis. Sure, roll it. Um, we start out uh, with a man who looks pretty much like a bum. Uh, he's hanging out down at the boardwalk in, I guess, Virginia. Oh, no, Delaware. Delaware, sorry. Um, that's right. But he, Oh, he sent her a postcard from Virginia because he was going. Okay, we'll get to that. Um, you know, he seems pretty resourceful. Uh, he's, he's breaking into a house, you know, getting a shower and all. Um, you know, get some food together. He's cooking a can of beans on the beach. Uh, there are other scenes where we see him, like, catching fish and gutting them. So, yeah, homeless person, but seems very resourceful. He's got this car, um, and I couldn't tell if the title refers, well, it definitely in some ways refers to the car that he drives, which is kind of his, his, uh, his identity piece that he gains and loses as, as the film goes along. But Blue Ruin is also the name of a, uh, city in New York, so... Oh, really? I think so. I believe so. Blue Ruin, New York is a, a place. Huh. But I don't think it's referenced at all in this film. No, no. So, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, so anyway, we have this guy. He's living out of a car, this blue rusted out Pontiac. Um, and he gets, uh, picked up by the cops after he breaks into a house to get, uh, a shower, and we think he's being arrested because, you know, he's the known homeless guy in town who lives out of this car down on the beach. Um, and what they're actually bringing him, him into is they're giving him a safe place that he wasn't alone when he finds out that the man who killed his parents is being released from prison. Uh, after that, he leaves the police station, uh, goes into his trunk. He's got some gasoline in there. He's got a battery. This car's kind of been his home in a stationary position with flat tires and you know, no battery in it because he didn't want anybody to steal it, so forth and so on. But it turns out he has those things, and this car is fully operational. It's kind of like the half-built Death Star in um, in uh, uh, Return of the Jedi. This fully operational battle station. Anyway, so uh, he puts some gas in it, throws the battery in, uh, drives on down to the gas station, fills it up with some fuel. He's obviously been collecting money through some way, some means or another. Um... And uh, fills up the tires with air, and now he's he's ru- ripping and rocking on the road. He throws away all his books, so all the stuff that he's been just kind of keeping himself occupied with these years. And he goes straight to Virginia on his way. He sends a postcard to his sister and um, attempts to get a gun. Uh, he swinged by a bar. Um, interestingly, everything about him is blue in our cinematography and our mise-en-scene. And uh, this bar that he goes to, this redneck sort of uh, hillbilly bar, it it appears. Red cars, red signs. We have kind of a red tinge to it. Um, You know, starkly contrasting with the the blue. So at any rate, uh, he steals a gun case, uh, smashes a window, smash and grab, and then uh, tries to open it. He gets it open, but the gun's got a lock on it. He tries to smash the lock, gives up, and uh, throws it out. Uh, he continues along his path and um, is there when the guy's being released from prison. He follows them to their abode and sneaks in and kills this man in the bathroom with a knife. Uh, he's injured during the course of this, um, and he loses the keys to his car during the course of this, which he doesn't notice until after he slashes the tire. So he's uh, driving their car away, 
Um, at the time when uh, he's driving their car away with, with a, a flat tire, tire, with a knife in the tire, and he gets down the road and he hears banging in the back of the limousine, um, and it's a, a young boy, and the boy gets out of the car, and he gets out of the car, and the boy says, did you hurt Wade? And he says, yeah, Wade hurt my parents. And then the boy says, I don't think he did. The boy runs off, and he leaves there on foot. Um, he gets a ride from a sheriff into town where his uh, sister lives and, and goes and meets up with his sister, explains what he did, what he's done, that the guy's done. The sister is um, not angry with him, but, she, you know, she's startled by this news, and uh, <laughs> they're sitting at a restaurant, and <laughs> like in the middle of them talking, like, I killed him. Yeah. I'm glad he's dead. And then the guy's like, yo, I don't got no ketchup on my table. You got ketchup on yours? I don't got no ketchup on my <laughs> table. <laughs> I don't got no ketchup on. I don't got no ketchup on. Um, so at any rate, uh, then at this point, he goes like, well, where are the kids? And she's like, at the house. So they rush back to the house because they were worried about retaliation. And he says, just take the kids and go. And he camps out at the house. And yeah, sends her to P Pittsburgh. Yeah, and waits for the retaliation to come because they noticed that there was no mention of it on the news, so... They're probably not going to the cops. They're probably just going to come take their blood from Right, him. blood for blood. So um, he gets attacked uh, in the household, but he's ready for it. Uh, he takes an arrow to the leg and ends up kidnapping one of the guys because he hits him with the car and uh, then goes from there. Uh, oh, his car, because they took his car and the limousine back. Um, he got the spare set of keys from his sister's house. Uh, this is obviously the parents' car or something like that. Possibly the car, I don't know if it directly mentions it, but it's possibly the car that his parents were killed in. Oh, uh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I kind of have that, that feeling because, you know, she talks about the Pontiac. Do you still have the Pontiac? And, you know, just the idea of him, his identity is wrapped up in this trauma. Yeah, and also because this is, you know, this will come up, I think, in our discussion but also it contributes to the sense of that it, it kind of that moment was a smashed hourglass because you get this sense of him returning to this place that's pretty much he left it. And, you know, at that point, like his life kind of stalled and stopped and he became this different person. And so he's coming back and finding all these shattered fragments of his life where he left them, old friends, uh, people who remember him. You know, I, I like that we get the little detail uh, once he meets the friend saying like, hey, you know, I put 200 miles on my car putting up your uh, missing posters. And that's the first we hear that, that that happened, that he actually went missing without telling anyone. Right. So basically, we, we learn, uh, well, he goes and finds his friend who's working in a metal club now. And, and that's when we get that little tid tidbit. Because uh, now we understand that essentially, let's see, I can use that word. Um, when it's right, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, essentially, he disappeared off the place of the off the face of the earth after his parents were killed. Um, and interestingly, the cops in the town where he's staying in Delaware seem to know this and understand this too. So I, I'm not quite sure how that all gets put together, but it's there. It's all there. Um, he goes to his friend, his old uh, high school buddy, and uh, asks for a gun. 
Uh, meanwhile, as he's driving around back and forth, he's got this guy in the trunk hooting and hollering, trying to like get somebody to notice him. So maybe, you know, but it doesn't happen. Um, despite the fact that we have a cop in the first, like, second or third scene, this this world is, and that he gets a ride from a cop, this world is is fairly lawless. Um, the the cops don't seem to enforce any sort of law. All the law is enforced through the interactions between the the feuding families. Uh, we should say that this is Dwight McCabe. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm more familiar with the last name of our antagonist than with the, the antagonist. The antagonist is... Uh, the Clelands. Clelands, and I think the McCabe's. Clelands, so, yeah, okay. So that's McCoy's and Hatfields. Hatfields, basically. God damn it! Stop saying that word. Um. <laughs> at any rate, uh, he gets a gun from from this guy. He says, "I've got sixteen acres. Uh, why don't you uh, go out there, do your business? Um, if you need a place that's quiet." Um. He has this altercation with the guys. He lets him out of the trunk. He tries to get him to phone the family. Uh, so that they can all meet up in public and and oh yeah well uh, we should say how that all happened. There's an altercation at the sister's house where uh, they show up to try to kill. I covered that. Oh, did we talk about the crossbow and all that? I said he took an arrow in the leg. Oh, okay, Sorry. I was trying not to go too in detail. Like we can go into detail later. Yeah, but. yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, he basically has this conversation. <laughs> uh, he essentially has this conversation <laughs> with the guy and. Uh, the guy just totally plays him for a rube. Um, realizes that he, you know, he missed from two yards away with a rifle, um, and and basically, and stand, stop, just don't use filler words. And he jumps him. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm really cursing myself for saying basically and essentially before everything. But he jumps him, and um, he's about to kill our our protagonist, Dwight, and. Uh, he gets shot at long range um, by the friend, who is actually played by Buzz from Home Alone, the older brother who had the uh, stash of porn and money that Kevin... Buzz, I'm going through all your stuff. You better come stop me. Shut up, fart breath. Shoots Kevin McAllister. <laughs> so it's, what happens is... um. The friend kills him, and he says, look, I really want him off my property. And we get a little tidbit right here where he says, um, hey, that photograph that, uh, there's an aforementioned photograph of you and me and the stripper. If you find it, destroy it. Uh, which is him saying, you know, I don't exist anymore, kind of. Um, and so we have cross-cutting between him driving through the country and um, and uh, the guy going back, finding the photograph burning it in the microwave, um, and he goes to the McAllister's. McAllister, right? Oh, uh, the Cleland? Cleland, sorry. <laughs> the McAllister? <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> yeah, he goes to a giant house with a French-speaking sister. And a bl- no, uh, he goes to the Cleland's house, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, finds them not there, goes through the house, takes all the guns out, and just kind of lies in wait for them um they come back um everybody dies basically except for the young boy who said i don't think wade hurt your parents um granny with a a minigun finally takes him out after he shoots both sisters and uh not both sisters uh the the brother the sister because the conversation that they have 
they hear his phone message of him saying, I want this to end. I want this to end. Um, and I just want to know that you're not going to go after my sister. And as soon as they hear that, they're like, that's exactly where we're fucking going. We're going to kill your sister. So they start shooting him. Um, and we end with these uh, kind of still shots of his sister's house, which is now covered in crime scene tape. The arrow stuck in the grass from when they missed him. Um, the car. Just, just still shots kind of of the aftermath. Right. Of this. And then we roll credits. Oh, and the postcard arrives. And the postcard finally arrives because his sister's like, I never got the postcard because they take longer. Postcards cost more money. They take longer to, to send. Right. Uh, which is kind of showing that he he's out of touch with society and how, how it works. You know, the idea of even sending somebody a, hey, postcard, I'm in Virginia. Um, he doesn't even know how to do that quite right because he's totally detached. So, should we move on to the uh, the next segment? I think I move nailed on. that down in, in 13 oh, minutes no, or so. Oh, no, you did very well. Yeah. Okay. So Brady, how'd you like this movie? Um, I liked it quite a bit. I, I yeah, it's it's a really really good movie. Uh, and you know, as always, the some of the bigger stuff will be for our discussion and for what's it all about. But you know, I'll just say it's a a really 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 promising. Not debut because, as I understand it, this is the guy's second film, second film of Jeremy Saulnier, however you pronounce that. Yeah, but I believe the actor who played Dwight. The main character, it is his debut. Oh, yeah. oh his acting debut? I think so. He's a childhood friend of Sonia. Uh, sure, maybe. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he no, he's great. Uh, but I'm, I'm interested more than anything in this director because this is a really, uh, the way he handles tone in this uh, is really, really good. Uh, if I have any complaint, and it's not even really a complaint, it's more that uh, the kind of style the film uh, displays in the early going is much more terse and poetic and relying on visual. And so the only problem I had, and it doesn't even really detract from the movie, I would say so much as change its character is uh, that once they start talking and you get more dialogue and more of the backstory of kind of the feud between the families and how the father was cheating and all that, it's uh it came off a little less poetic for me than the early flourishes where it's just this silent guy and we're trying to figure him out. What I really like though, and is really a terrific idea and about as well handled here as maybe I've ever seen is this idea of revenge being a messy business of this guy, you know, life throws tragedy at us. And just because you're someone who's afflicted by tragedy doesn't mean that you're cut out to be this remorseless killer. And this guy certainly isn't. And so what's really cool about this as just like a perfect little genre exercise is seeing him kind of stumble through the motions of revenge and still kind of come out uh, doing it right, but just very, very sloppily. And so it's true to life about, you know, the high cost of violence, that violence isn't this easy thing we see in the movies that's just going to come snap seamlessly to us. Uh, You know, there's real weight to what it means to take a human life. And I think that's really neat. And it's done with some really, really good tone. Uh, you know, it's just some of the visual stuff. I, I love the opening of just him in the house and kind of it, it takes in the interiors before we even see him. Uh, so we get this sense of what his life must have been like being a drifter. 
uh, one thing I really like uh, among many is the moment where he checks to see if the guy in the car is still alive. And once it happens, all of a sudden the car just turns into this almost like this giant angry cell phone. It's just like, bzz, bzz, hey, fuck you. So, and it's like this guy trying not to be detected now has a car that's like an angry hornet. That's just, yeah. It's like an alarm. It's it's a human car alarm. And he's just driving it around hoping not to get caught. Yeah, it's in a really the, cool in the lawless sonic world visual where, thing. Yeah, in the lawless world where it doesn't seem to enforce anything against his revenge attempt. Right. Yeah, no, so, uh, no, really, really terrific movie. I, I liked it a lot. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a, a Bay Plinus. Uh, what I'm really curious, though, this guy's mastery of tone and kind of like his... This director has a really strong sense of what he can do with the camera, I think, and he coaxes a terrific performance out of a guy I'd never heard of before. So uh, I'm curious and very, very hopeful to see where this guy's career is going. Yeah, um, I'm going to go ahead and give it an A-. minus. I think that, that point that you were making about how it changes and how it just starts to become a different sort of film um, where, uh, you know, after they start to have more dialogue and start to explain things, uh, the backstory and all that, um, I think that's intentional. I think primarily, and we'll get to this and What's It All About, this is a movie about change and about uh, identity. I mean, because he starts off this this bum, you know. Right. And as we learn more about him, he changes into this kind of clean-cut guy, and then as he gains more and more agency in, in his task and what he has to do, he, he changes as a character into kind of a, uh, a ineffective but effective enough assassin. You know, yeah. more of like a badass. For, so it goes com from completely helpless, seemingly, uh, although very intelligent, uh, to basically, you know, a killer. Yeah. I use that word again, but eh, it worked in that sentence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> basically. So, um, yeah, that's an A minus for me. I, I think those tone shots are, are really good. The cinematography is great. I really love the ending. Uh, with the still shots of just kind of the aftermath um, and the idea that in this whole bloody mess, this uh, the, the young kid gets away and how it is about change. I mean, that kid's going to be in and out of therapy forever and ever and ever. <laughs> but um, it's about it's about change and it's about this old world uh, with this feuding family who can't let it go to there's one survivor and he's the one who's different and he's just not down with that. Right. No, I, I really like that, that maybe this is indicative of like where my tiny quibbles with the movie are in terms of maybe losing a little bit of its poetic terseness is that that ending with the kid is like perfectly judged and it totally I'm down with it. And the only thing that I was like, hmm, maybe not necessary was their explanation of it because what he realizes is that this kid is probably the love child of his father and the wife because that's how the murder came about. The dad was killed for uh, having adultery with the other man's wife. And so he's explaining that, well, I'm not going to kill him. And it almost comes off as, well, I'm not going to kill him because he's technically a family of mine. And I almost would have preferred it if that explanation wasn't there. Well, I don't think it really was. I mean, it, it was it was available and it was 
insinuated, but it wasn't directly stated, which I like. And also, they they offer an alternative uh, when he he first gets there, and um, and this might be feeding into it, depending on how you look at it, or uh, offering an alternative um, as to why the the boy wasn't killed. But when he's having that altercation in the trunk with with the man, you know, he mentions uh, the boy who said that Wade didn't hurt my parents. Uh, and the guy says he's just a boy. So, right. I mean, it could also be that they didn't, that he didn't kill him regardless of which family he belongs to, but he's still innocent. No. Yeah. And, I, and he loses that innocent in shooting innocence because he shoots Dwight. Right. And, uh, but, um, it's, it's, it's not necessarily plainly laid out. We're definitely meant to think that, and this boy is kind of an outsider to this family. Yeah. No, I mean, look, we, we exist, you know, we're on the internet. We exist in a world of hyperbole. So let me just emphasize, which sounds hyperbolic itself. Uh, none of my quibbles are hyperbolic quibbles. They're not even really quibbles. They're just, they make this movie something different than maybe my brain was expecting. But that's fine because I'm going to think about this. It's it's a really, really fine picture. And I think, you know, as I reflect on it, I those issues are going to become less issues and more just that the, uh, I I understand this movie differently than I did going in. And that's not a bad thing. No, it's not. Okay, so I think we got how we like it. So uh, let's do what's it all about. And like I said, I'm, I'm just going to pause it and let you go. But I, I think it's about identity and about changing over time and about uh, sins of the fathers and, and not recommitting that. And that going through that, yeah, it's bloody. And yeah, the people who are trying to not... Uh, recommit the sins of their father uh often do but with the understanding that they are and with an attempt at least to prevent it thus making it more possible for their future followers to not uh yeah Uh, let me before i jump into my thing uh and say what i think it's about let me totally agree with you especially you know i like your idea about the car this kind of rusted memento of of that tragedy of that life that this is this thing this lingering object that was there from the very beginning of the the catalyst yeah it's another thing because that's something that you kind of get but it's not explicitly stated as well right and so yeah i i will echo your thoughts and say that it's totally about identity kind of fractured and coming back to this frozen identity of the place you used to grow up and kind of sifting through it and that gives the movie a really, really compelling world in which to take place. Uh, but more than that, I think for me, uh, movies for me are usually when I say what they're about, what I really mean is what they do best, what the movie's doing best. And so if I'm going on what the movie really does flawlessly, this movie is about the high cost and the difficulty of killing. And, and it's so perfect in that regard in presenting killing as this kind of fumbling thing. It's not just, you know, revenge may be a dish best served cold, but making that dish is very difficult because if you don't time the eggs just right and then, oh, you're spilling all over the kitchen floor. Yeah, absolutely. When we have uh, movies about assassins or movies about killing, they're always like these these expert assassins who are able to take out 20 guys at once, like, uh, immediately. And this this was not that. This was, this is sloppy, uh, the part, the more organized family is even sloppy. Right. Like, um, 
you know, he gets injured every time he commits a murder. It is he's, he's he's an unwitting assassin. He's trying to figure this out. Yeah, you know, so even maybe people who are even more used to killing, maybe no one's really used to what killing means because it's just yeah, there's there's a weight to it. And so that, you know, gives this movie uh, makes this movie not just a cynical, perfectly judged genre exercise about revenge, but actually gives it moral weight, and that's that's huge. Yeah. So going back to what I was thinking about it, it being about identity, and uh, you know, there there are many little highlights for that. Like there's the uh, the friend who uh, is he's uh, he's definitely more skilled in the way of guns, but he he does target practice. He's very knowledgeable on what you need to not leave behind, like teeth, when uh, he shoots from long range with the Mosin and blows a piece of his head off. Um, right. Yeah, the coyotes will get that as long as there's no teeth. It's fine. Um, now, just get him off my property. Also, uh, he asked him earlier on, he's like, have you ever killed? And he said, two on purpose. Which means we don't we don't know what the not on purpose was. But it means that like he has killed and he has a code as to when... It is okay to kill. Um, when he shoots him, even, he's, he apologizes for um, w- leaving it so long, but he had to make sure that he pointed the gun at him. So he, fought, he fired a warning shot, and it waited him for him to swing the gun around to his general direction before he shot him, so it was legal. Right. Or not necessarily even legal, because, you know, you're setting this trap, but... Legal in his eyes, and in line with his moral code, right? So th- this man it, is a killer, but he's a killer in a very neat way where it, it serves, you know, what morally to him is uh, is possible. Um, and Dwight is the Dwight character is very much in the same way. Um, you killed my parents, I can kill you. Well, I screwed up. Um, I killed the wrong man. Well. Uh, oops. <laughs> and then that's where he starts to get the ambiguousness, and he's like, I'm not sure I believe that, or, you know, it takes him a long time to begin to understand that he should uh, believe that, uh, etc. Like, you know, the fact that he went and killed somebody, and maybe he wasn't right about that, it takes him a long time to, throughout the course of the movie, come to grips with that. Right. Uh, furthermore, you know, at the end, he says... Um, I didn't kill, uh, I think it was Teddy. Oh, Teddy. Yeah, I didn't kill Teddy. Well, I guess I did, because he knows that he set this whole chain in motion and right. et cetera. Yeah, um, so I guess it's also kind of about guilt and culpability, maybe well, a it's, bit, too. Well, I mean, it's about coming to terms with it, right? Because he's traveling around in this, this ruin, this car that's his, his mode of transportation, which he gains and loses. It's his home, you know, when it's a stationary object with flat tires. Uh, it's, it's his, uh, and, and, uh, inevitably it's what's left behind for the young boy who's possibly his brother, half brother, um, to escape in and, uh, sort of follow the same trajectory, but without the baggage and without the, uh, the murderous past being left behind. Right. Now I want to mention a line I like, uh, a, because I think it taps into theme but also because it, it leads to um, not an issue I'm having, but one of the things I'm going to be chewing over on this film when I think about you know what, what its tone is and kind of how it's playing itself. And that's the, the line where you know he finally opens the trunk where Teddy's trapped 
and he's holding the rifle on him, trying to decide what he's going to do. And so he lets him make a phone call to his family because he wants to get everyone together and be like, look, this is over. Just let's figure out a way that I don't have to keep killing you guys. Just stay away from my sister. And so he kind of has kind of tying into this idea of revenge being sloppy, him kind of making stuff up on the fly, just doing his best to get through the situation. He tells him, oh, yeah, and say you're in Kentucky, you know, because I don't want them to know where I am. Say you're in Kentucky. And the guy gives him a quizzical look. He's like, have you ever been to Kentucky? And that I like that line because it's kind of like a nice sly little metaphor for the movie as a whole. Like, do you really know what you're doing? Well, I mean, it's also kind of like, and we're in Kentucky, by the way. So he's trying to convince him that he right. is in Kentucky. And the guy's like, I've been to Kentucky and this ain't fucking Kentucky. <laughs> oh, because he's been in the trunk the whole time. Right. That's true. <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, that's that's one of the things I'm going to be chewing over, though, is maybe what I wasn't prepared for. Uh, and this doesn't come about, I'm going to say, until around the time that we've met the sister character and once he's shaved the beard off. And that's the movie's kind of sudden bursts of humor which is not something I was exactly expecting. I mean, there's a kind of a sick, cynical humor to seeing the knife in the tire and him driving off with rap blaring uh, while you know this knife is spinning around. But beyond that, I think the movie plays with humor a bit more as it goes along, and I'm trying to figure out what I think about that in terms of tone. Well, I mean, I don't think it's humor. It strikes us as humorous because it's, it's a, a dialectic between you know his sort of discomfort with having to exist at least somewhat inside the constraints of society. I mean, when when he says things like, that's, uh, that's uh, a, an arrow wound. You know, it's, it's half, um, it's half like, wow, I'm really s- explaining that I've been shot in the leg with an arrow. Uh-huh. And, and half, you know, this, this man spent 10 years not speaking. Right. Not speaking to anybody. Um, there's a, a moment when he goes to find his friend, who's once again played by Buzz from Home Alone. Um, see, we're trying to in- interject humor in a very serious movie that I introduced by explaining that uh, acquaintances died uh, this week. <laughs> so, depressing cast. We'll try to uh, lighten it up a little bit. Do but, some shtick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Buzz from... Um, yeah, Buzz from Home Alone. Uh, <laughs> Buzz from <laughs> Rob just hangs head. Home Alone. <laughs> Buzz from Home Alone. Uh, he, um, he's looking for him, and the the his mom, uh, who's who's very trepidatious at first when he says like, uh, you know, I'm looking for Buzz. She goes like, Oh no, he doesn't live here anymore. And she's about to close the door, and he goes, It's Dwight from high school. And then she goes, Oh, I didn't recognize you. And now she's open and warm and giving. And she offers him a cup of tea. And we don't even see him say no to the cup of tea. We just cut. Oh, no, he says yes. He says, I'd, I'd actually love a cup of tea. Oh, okay. I, I missed that then. All right. Well, then that's kind of playing into my point as well, <laughs> which is that, you know, he's he's slowly kind of trying to deal with being able to sit and have a conversation and, and so forth and on. Right. Like when he goes and meets his sister, he's like, I'm sorry, I'm tired. I'm just not used to talking this much. Um, and then so he's having a conversation with the grandma. And um, sorry, I guess I missed that. I, I must have looked away or looked at my phone. I was also looking up information on it because I had seen this before, but it's been several months. Um, 
but yeah, so a- as he goes, he he becomes more and more involved, uh, especially with the friend. Um, and then by the end of it, when he knows that it's kind of futile, after the altercation with the man in the trunk, Teddy, right. um, he realizes it's futile and he's he's gonna have to go. But he's gonna give it le- one last shot. He's gonna re- remove all the guns from the house and throw them in the lake. He's gonna bury Teddy. He's gonna still be pissed off and piss on the grave of the the <laughs> the uh, pedophilias who really killed his parents. Yeah, lovingly bury the guy who maybe didn't deserve to die. Piss on the grave of the fucker who does. Who does right? Um, but he has the kind of connection with his friend, uh, and his friend helps him. And his friend goes like, "I don't know if I totally understand. I don't know if I would have done this if I was in your shoes." But I can see why you are. I just don't know if I would. Uh, yeah, I'm not but doing I, this because it's right. I, yeah, I'm not doing this because it's right. I'm doing this because I can't tell whether or not it's right because I'm not in your shoes. And so they have that connection. And then when he's leaving, he says, if you find that photograph of the stripper and me and you, burn it. And he leaves him the yearbook, which is like, you can have the official record of me. Just don't expect me to live as a personal person in your life anymore. So he kind of goes into the, yeah. the connection and then he realizes that he has to let it go. Cause he realizes this is the end of him. And then this is his, his sole purpose in life is to protect his sister and her kids and make sure that they can live safely. And even so much protect his quote unquote half brother so that he can live. Right. Despite everybody's going to deal with this trauma for the rest of their life. But uh, at least the trauma won't be hanging out a few states over, right? <laughs> well, and that's something he keenly understands is you know being the lingering victim of trauma. Yeah, and and his whole identity is wrapped up in this car, and that's like I said, it's not explicitly stated, but upon second viewing, it's probably where it happened uh, because his sister has a set of keys. She's touched by this trauma, and he has a set of keys. That he wears around his neck, by the way. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, the stuff with the friend, it, it's interesting because, uh, and I want to phrase this again as how much I like this movie. And I, I'm kind of, this is very uh, confessional, this podcast for me, because I'm kind of going through my thoughts as we're talking, uh, which is good. This is like therapeutic. Yeah, it's been a while since we watched the movie and then immediately afterwards went and cast it on it. So, like, the stuff with the friend, um, as much as those scenes of kind of more of him interacting, uh, maybe took away what I was expecting to be a sparse poetic exercise. Uh, and the reason I wanted that is only because Sonia is really good with visuals. Uh, I mean, a quick interjection here, because Rob was mentioning as we watched the, ca- uh, not the cast, the movie, that this was made for about 80,000 K. Uh, this is like in music terms, analogizing when you hear like a DIY super made on the cheap album and yet somehow all the acoustics just sound crisp. Like you're actually in the studio, like taking very little money and not just having a good story, but making all the effects, all that's actually there on the screen feel right. This movie is so good at that. And so that's probably the reason maybe I was like, Oh, I wanted this to be a more of a, a visual exercise, but I'll say when we get to those uh, scenes where there's more interaction, 
as much as maybe it changed what I was expecting the film to be, it also makes this a much more accessible and improbably warm film. I mean, warm probably isn't the right word, but it does right. become warmer. It's it's violent, and there's those cringe points and stuff like that, but it's very accessible. It's not It's not like this character is somebody I would never know or ever be like yeah it's a bit of a human touch if you were in this situation you could see yourself being this character you know i think that that'll probably reward repeat viewing so right yeah i i loved it around the second second time too uh well i I think we're nailing this pretty good let's take a break and do uh, a study we haven't even taken a break yet yeah calm down we're gonna get full yeah geez we're gonna gonna go for the uh Gusto. Pace yourself, Augustus. <laughs> Augustus. I only speak in movie quotes. This is a real is problem. It, uh, is that uh, the mother from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory telling Augustus Gluck to not chow down on candy? Yes, it is. I'm glad I got it. That was pretty obscure. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, here's understudy. We're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay, but we've got two understudies, and to be honest, they're probably more famous anyway. So try to guess the actors, try to guess the movies. Tweet we doesn't see in what couch. This game called understudy is happening, 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 happening right now. You know, baby, Mommy's kind of mad at Daddy. Why, Daddy? Were you a bad Daddy? I'm afraid I was. I was a real bad Daddy. Our little girl learned about life and death the other day. You want to tell Mommy about what happened to uh, Emilio? I killed him. I didn't mean to, but I stepped on him and he... Stopped moving. So Amelia was her goldfish, right? She came running into my room, holding the fish in her hand, crying, Daddy, Daddy, Amelia's dead. And I said, really, that's so sad. How did, she, how did he die? And what, what did you say? I stepped on him. <laughs> Actually, young lady, the words you so strategically used were, I accidentally stepped on him, right? Yes. To which... I queried, and just how did your foot accidentally find its way into Emilio's fishbowl? And she told me, no, 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 no. Amelia was on the carpet when she stepped on him. Hmm, the plot thickens. And just how did Emilio get on the carpet? And Mommy, you, you would have been real proud of her because she, she didn't lie. She said she took Emilio out of his bowl and put him on the carpet. And what was Amelia doing on the carpet, baby? She was flapping around like a poor deceased thing. Yeah, and then you uh, stomped on him, right? Uh Uh-huh. And when you lifted up your foot, what was Emilio doing? He was doing nothing. Right, yeah, so he he stopped flapping, didn't he? Uh Uh-huh. And you, you know what that meant, didn't you? Yes. What did that mean? It meant that he was dead and that the light had perished out of his eyes like a glimmer of a flame into the darkness. Now, I mean, it's interesting, man. She told me later that the second she lifted up her foot and, and saw him uh, not flapping, she knew he was dead. 
Is that not the perfect visual image of life and death? A fish flapping on the carpet and a fish not flapping on the carpet. It's so powerful, even a, a five-year-old a child with a, no concept of life and death, right, uh, could understand it. So she comes running into my room holding Emilio in both of her little hands, right? It was so cute. She, she wanted to make Emilio better. And I asked her, why did she step on Emilio? And she said, you know, she didn't know. But I know why. You didn't mean to hurt Amelia. You just wanted to see what would happen if you stepped on him, right? I answer in the affirmative. And, and what happens when you stomp on Amelia is you kill him. And you discovered that, didn't you? Uh-huh. Yeah, so, so, so we, uh, we drove down to the beach and I had a little funeral and gave, gave Amelia a, a burial at sea. And, and right now, I'm sure he's as happy as can be you know, swimming around in fish heaven, but... The point being, our child learned two very important lessons. One, about life and death. And the other, something, you know, once you do, they, they can't be undone. I knew just how she felt. And you, you loved Emilio, didn't you? Uh-huh. Well, sweetie, I love Mommy, but I did to Mommy what you did to Emilio. You stomped on Mommy like a small <laughs> step on it that you would open. Worse. I shot mommy. Not pretend shoot like uh, like we were just doing. I I shot her for real. Why? I don't know. Did you want to see what would happen? N- no, I I I knew what would happen to mommy. I if I shot her, it just you know what I didn't know is is when I shot mommy, what would happen to me? What happened? Uh, I was very sad, and, and that was when I learned some things once you do, they can never be undone. What happened to Mommy? Why don't you ask Mommy? Are you okay, Mommy? Does it hurt? <laughs> no, s- sweetie, it d- doesn't hurt anymore. Did it make you sick? It put me to sleep! That's why I haven't been with you, baby! I've been asleep! But you're awake now. I'm wide awake, pretty girl! That was uncertain. Tweet us your answer at C-A-R-N-Y Couch. Alright, that was a fun round of understudy. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yes, indeed, always. Um, once again, Understudy is this game where we do a scene, but we do it as voices of actors who weren't in the scene. So your job as the listener is to try and guess the movie that we were doing, try and guess the scene that we were doing, uh, and try to guess the actors that we were attempting to portray. Um, when you do have the answer, you can post a comment on our website, uh, either in the show feed, or... You can post it, uh, you can send us your answers at, at Carney Couch, uh, C-A-R-N-Y Couch, uh, on Twitter. And uh, then things will happen, which, uh, if those things happen, I'll reveal what will happen. If, if you send us answers, I will reveal on the next podcast, hey, people started answering this, here's what happens when you answer. But uh, I really don't want to uh, take up too much time saying that until... You guys actually send me the answers to your uh, guesses on uh, 
the understudy game that we play every week so diligently, and we, we, we really want to hear from you. So please validate us. Validate. Uh, make us feel like we're not howling into the void. Validate us, said. and we will validate your parking. Exactly. Shit, we gave it away. Shit. Well, we'll come up with a new prize. Yeah, and for now we'll go back to our discussion on Blue Ruin. Uh, that, that final scene has a lot of... A lot of, lot of stuff in it, doesn't it now, Brady? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it does. Uh, one thing I, I kind of liked, uh, or I like the idea of it uh, anyway, is he kind of does uh, the Hamlet thing. You know, like when Hamlet uh, watches the play, but he's really watching his uncle watch the play. And so he, you know, leaves this message and he's kind of, hiding behind the wall and he's listening watching the uh, the Cleveland family to see how they react to his message uh, the only thing is I thought maybe it was a little on the nose the way that like the guy's just like well fuck that we're gonna kill your sister like okay that's all the validation I need wait but I mean like when people hear things like that they you know no, react I know. emotionally it's, it's a fair reaction I mean that's the thing about this movie it's like all the things that happen everything that's done uh, in terms of, you know, killing somebody, trying to kill somebody, fucking it up, blah, 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 uh, not being good at shooting a gun. I mean, it's all very believable. It's not like action movies where it's just like, this guy must have three nine, uh, 390 rounds in his, well, 397 rounds in his clip, if you're thinking about an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Every clip has exactly 397 bullets, uh, where in real life, you you have 20. You only have 500 bullets left. What do you do? Kill everybody! <laughs> well, come on down! Exactly. And so that doesn't happen in this movie. Uh, uh, he almost always gets injured when he enters an altercation. Uh, the other side always gets injured or killed when he enters an altercation. And, and I mean, even in that final scene, um, Grandma with the minigun... Well, not Grandma, but Mommy with the minigun, like, takes out her own daughter trying to shoot him, you know? Right. So, I mean, like, yeah, what you were saying before about it, it is not sloppy. I mean, it is sloppy, but, I mean, th- the director wasn't sloppy. Yeah, no, Is what yeah. I'm saying. Uh, the people are sloppy because they should be because they're not fucking amazing commando man. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the one thing uh, that I'm trying to kind of piece through in terms of what it means message-wise because, I mean, as we've been talking about, this is a movie, you know, a lot about the moral weight of killing and that killing isn't this simple thing you can just do as if you're in a video game, that it should have consequences and feel sloppy. And, you know, the ending scene echoes something the friend says to him a little earlier, which is don't get into speeches. Like, don't get bogged down in the personal details of what you feel. If you want to do revenge right, drop the soliloquy and just pull the trigger. And he does get shot because he gets distracted kind of trying to unload his issues to the Clelands before he kills them. Uh, But that's interesting to me because in a movie about the moral weight of killing, what does it mean that our hero pays the price for maybe trying to relate on a human level to our antagonists? Uh, It's just, it's food for thought to me. And I'm, I'm, it'll be one of the things that I piece through. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of running out of things to say. (laughs) 
uh, I kind of had my whole identity diatribe. I had the uh, this movie's very well made and it's not unbelievable the things that happen right. diatribe. Well, I mean, to put your feet to the fire, does that in any way contradict the movie's point about, you know, it's I, I would say in the best way, this is an anti-violence movie. Uh, right. Despite being incredibly violent. <laughs> yeah. So but but is that uh, how how do you feel about the fact that he ends up paying with his life because he stops for a moment to actually try to talk to the people that he's you know fighting? Uh, I don't think he ever had any illusions about making it out of there alive. Never had any illusions about leaving this place alive. Exactly. No, he uh, he wasn't. He didn't plan to live. Like he told his friend to burn the picture of him because he's like, I'm done. Like. So he hid the blue Pontiac, and the one place you can hide a blue Pontiac yeah. is ass. <laughs> Precisely. Um, and covered with tree branches. Yo, I, 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 put the blue Pontiac in my ass. You covered it with tree, tree branches, branches and uh, left the keys in it. Told uh, young young William where to go and get the, get the get the keys, get the car, and drive it out of there and uh, survive. Uh, You're my half-brother, and uh, you live. Half-brother from another half-mother. Um, talk to me about the ending, the postcard. Uh, well, I mean, that's... Well, I guess I looked at it kind of of... Um I mean, it ties into the sins of the father thing, the the uh, sins of the father, sins of the mother, sort of um, the relic from the past coming, like, because the, the last scenes that we get are all shots of the aftermath uh, right. of what happens. Um, uh, there is some caution tape, but the caution tape is actually due to a tree that has fallen. There's There was a storm, and a tree has fallen. There's a There's a runner kind of casually running by one of the arrows stuck in the grass that's left behind. Uh, we see a shot of the uh, the window, which, uh, by the way, in the middle, I forgot to mention, after he has the altercation with the family, when they go to his sister's house and he's already sent his sister to Pittsburgh to be safe, um, you know, he has this whole thing where he gets shot in the leg, shot in the leg, tries to sew it up himself, goes to the hospital. I don't think we mentioned that in the plot synopsis. No, we but didn't. when he gets done with all that and, and takes care of all that, he comes back to the house and turns off the water that he left running in the bathroom to make it seem like someone was in there. He he puts a piece of cardboard over the window that got broken, you know, very much trying to protect his sister's environment and kind of isolate her from all this stuff that's going on because that's his whole purpose. His whole purpose in this film is, well, I'm, I'm totally destroyed by this. My sister somehow moved on, uh, has daughters, uh, ironically... Not ironically, but uh, coincidentally, no, um, no husband in the picture. It seems like with her, she's a, a single mother, um, which would make sense because I mean, you coming from a background of trauma like that, you'd probably have a very difficult time maintaining um, interpersonal relationships very much in the same way that our our protagonist Dwight does. Um, but she's been able to do it enough that she's been able to build a life for herself. And his main goal is to isolate her from the violence of the past. So the postcard is basically a letter from the past that ends up after the storm, uh, allowing this kind of uh, message from before he made this identity shift and this identity transfer into the agent of revenge or the agent of... uh, 
I guess, sort of protecting her. Because before he was just about living, reading, waiting. This was his life. And uh, eventually he became, if not a, not really a patriarch, but like the man who was going to make sure that uh, his kids or his sister's kids and, uh, you know, the child of the enemy family didn't have to relive the sins of the father and mother. I see. I like that. Um, to me, I think I'm kind of like this is kind of a messy thought and I'm trying to mold it together. But to me, it says something kind of tying into the theme of the sloppiness of, of killing and kind of, you know, what do you really know about killing until you've done it? Like it's not thing. This kind of thing isn't like it's in the movies, that kind of idea. And so there's something kind of an interesting message about consequence, I think, that it's yeah, like you say, this is a snapshot from the moment before he killed, and he wanted to send the sister this thing, like, I'm coming, and I'm doing this thing, nice and clean, and uh, he learns that it actually takes days for the thing to arrive, and by the time it, just this little postcard arrives, the entire stream of consequence of the decision to kill has already transpired. And so, like, I think it, it says something to me about just, like, the act of killing has huge, huge ramifications and just stuff happens fast when, once he makes that decision. Yeah, and I mean, and there's also this sense of uh, the fact that he sent the postcard and says, did you get my postcard? And then she's like, no, I didn't. You know, shows uh, early on as a way of showing his detachment from um, reality and just not even realizing that postcards take longer to get there etc etc um and in the end it it shows his uh singularness as to being apart from the rest of society and not really having a purpose outside of resolving you know these unresolved issues that are ongoing for him cool uh i think that's a good place to go to metacritical yeah yeah all right you got a marker and all that kind yeah. of stuff all right Metacritical Rob's never gonna win Metacritical Brady's the victor again So it's time to play I'm gonna lose today Metacritical Yeah, it's time Okay, everybody, welcome to Metacritical, the movie where we, <laughs> the movie where we, uh, the game where we pick five movies, we try to guess the Metacritic score, and whoever's closest uh, over the course of all five wins. Brady, what do you got for us this week? Nothing. I have not thought of any movies yet. Okay, well, I mean, let's go with some indie flicks, right, okay. since we can't really do yeah. the, the, the tie from the the people. So, uh, do, you, do you happen to know off the top of your head Blood Symbol? Uh, no, I don't. All right, well, that'd be a good first time Sundance, darling, even though this isn't his first time, but, you know, close enough. Uh, first, first I've heard of him, and first I've really noticed what, what this guy was doing. Okay, Blood Simple, that's an 80s movie. Yeah. Let's uh, see. Cohen Brothers. Yeah, oh, Cohen. Yeah. First Cohen, I want to say. I, I believe so. I think they did a couple shorts prior to. Um, so, uh, what do you think? I think I'm going to go with a 77. Uh, huh. That's a good guess. That's a good guess. I'm going to go with 82 then. 
I mean, provided this is even on Metacritic, but it'll at least give you some time to think of something else. I would appreciate it if you stopped shouldering your mic. I you appear to have a gummy <laughs> attached to my shoe. Have you have you been eating gummies? No. Is it? It's like kind of a black gummy. Is it like gummy poop? <laughs> I think it's a gummy cola. Oh, okay, okay, that makes sense. Or maybe a gummy licorice soda. All Perhaps. right, all right. Just take off your shoes for now. You're this is bad pod. Don't put it in the plastic <laughs> bag. The plastic bag's something I'm gonna pull out later for recycling. Oh shit. No, nah, it's okay. I'm just fucking with you. It'll it'll get uh, burnt up in the furnace when they uh, heat up the glass anyway. In the furnace. Uh, answer is eighty-one. Oh wow, good job. So yeah, my eighty-two gets me uh, gets me ahead of the braidmeister at this point in time. All right, so more indies? Is that what we want, more indies? Yeah, well, I mean, let's go ahead and go with uh, Reservoir Dogs. Okay. You don't know it off the top of your head, right? No. Okay, cool. Uh, I'll go first since I did better on the last one. Hmm. Yeah, Reservoir Dogs is a tricky one because that could very well be in the 90s and it could very well be in the high 70s. Uh, just depending on how critics took it. But I, I'm thinking that if critics reviewed this and it got to Metacritic... They reviewed it after the fact, not when it was coming out. So I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go out on a limb, and, and and pick a low 90s score, or a high 80s score, in the hopes of being very close, uh, with an improbable decision. So I guess I'll go with 88, to hedge my bet a little bit. That's a good score. Yeah. I guess That's I'll incredibly good for Metacritic. Yeah. So. I'll go with uh, 82. 82 for Brady. All right, we got a six-point spread here. So if it's if it's high, uh, I'll kick ass. If it's low, uh, I'll probably still be all right. Yeah. Seventy-eight. Okay. That's four for Brady. Ten for me. Or five for me. Oh no, four. Four. That's right. That's right. Okay, let me think. I'm thinking indie films here. Indie films. Uh, first time. Okay, uh, let's go with one we've done on this podcast. Let's go with uh, Project X. <laughs> wow, that's random. Okay. Yeah, I know, but I mean, it's going to be tough to guess the score, huh? Yeah, probably. Because it's, I mean, like, it could easily be in the 50s and it could easily be in the 70s. It could easily be in the 40s, depending on just what critics thought of it. Man, you don't want to listen to what the critics think, man. All right. I, I, I've set you up, and now I'm going to bring down the hammer, because I went first last time. So you're oh, good. yeah, okay. Project X, I'm going to say uh, 42. Okay, I'll go with 58, because I bet you... Yeah, I bet you it landed around there. People like Todd Phillips for some reason, and he produced. So, let's see what happens. And theoretically, it's not going to come up with the Project X with uh, Matthew Broderick and the the apes um, who were flying into nuclear doses of radiation from the 80s, which is theoretically supposed to be a very good movie. Oh, man. Matthew Broderick and the Apes is my retro soul band that I'm putting together. (laughs) (laughs) I want you to clothe me. Clothe me. (laughs) Now I just took it literal. 
Don't take it literal, children. Uh, looks like it's a 48. 48. What did I say? 58. All right, I'm off 10 again, and you're off... You said Six. Yeah, 42. Yeah, that's not too bad. I think, uh, yeah, I think you're, at, you're ahead by four points or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Okay, why don't you pick one? Uh, okay, I pick one. Like first time indie flick. Yeah, okay. What we're going first with. time indie flick. Let's see. Hold on. Just hold. Or not on. even necessarily first time, but you know, back right. there. Back there. Uh, you know, this isn't his first, but I think it's you know, the one. Let Let's go with Dazed and Confused from Richard Linklater. Okay, yeah, yeah, that'll have a good thing. I'm gonna give that. Uh, I'm go with 88 on that. Now, what are you going to go with? Brady will go 80. I need you to beat this into my head because I always get this movie wrong. This movie is like 95 or something like that? 93. 93. Okay. I was closer this time before I said like 86 or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's check it out. So you you said, what did she say? I said eighty. Ah, uh, fuck. Especially ah. behind by fourteen or something like that. Okay, I'm gonna go with uh, Lost in Translation then. Okay, Sofia Coppola. Yeah, your guess. That was a very well reviewed movie, um, and a movie that I dearly love. I'm gonna give it an eighty-eight. Ooh, that's tough. That's real tough, man. All right, I got to make up uh, like 14 points on you. So if it was 88 and I did 100, I could only make up 12 points. Yeah. And if I was directly right on, so I guess the game is to not get further away. Yes. Fuck, that doesn't allow me the... Oh, but if I... Okay, wait, if I get dead on, though, I, I, I get a minus five. True, Okay, yeah. so I want to be nine points away from you. Um... And get it dead on. And get it dead on. All right. We'll go with 79 then. 79. Instead, Brady's just off by one, so it's 89. Ah. Uh-huh. So I'm off by 10. So that means I lost 30 points in the past two rounds, and Brady lost like four, six, and one. And yeah. then it was a four-point spread before that of me being down. So four, six, and one, that's 17, which, and I was down. 41 for uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, negative seventeen for moi. It's it's absolute value, man. It's always positive. Oh yeah, seventeen to forty-one. Yeah, fuck you. Fuck you. A Fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah, there we go. Fuck we got you. it. We got <laughs> let's, it. Just, let's just end with like a Dada-esque uh, swear stream. Well, I mean, that's usually the most fun ending of all. <laughs> fuck, fuck, fuck. Tristan, sorry. Oh, shit. My scarf got caught in the rear axle of a Ford and strangled me to death. Wait, Isabella. Who's that dancer? I was talking about uh, Tristan Starling. Uh, sorry. 
Who's that? That's the one of the main proponents of the Dadaist movement. Isadora Duncan, that's who I'm thinking of. Dadaism and dance. That is what we end this revenge thriller podcast. <laughs> well, with. I mean, like in terms of of um, uh, no, but I mean the person who who founded Dadaism or made it a movement or something was uh, Trist, Tristan Sorry, and he had a very very long scarf, and it got caught in the rear axle of uh, some car, and strangled him to death. Very very much the same way that uh, was it John Bonham. No, no, it was uh, Keith Moon. Keith Moon died somehow the same way, like got dragged behind a car because his scarf got caught or something like that. Yeah, and Isidore... Or no, 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 that wasn't Keith Moon. It was like, uh, it was a, it was a... Keith Moon was very upset because one of his bodyguards, that's, yeah, that's what happened, or like one of the security guys. That's what's up. Uh, And then also Isadora... Duncan. Duncan, right. Okay, so... Her own car. So take heed, Johnny Depp, um... Stop wearing so many goddamn scarves <laughs> because you're going to go that way uh, if you're not careful and if uh, all the car makers don't start protecting the uh, differential on their rear. Well, actually, wait. If they had a differential, no, that wouldn't help. Okay. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Shit, shit like that. Uh, do we got more to say about this movie? No. Okay, what are we going to do next week? Next week, I know what we're doing next week. We're doing... Uh, well, the next podcast is actually our, our top 10 of 2014. Oh, uh, true. But the week uh, after that... Yeah, so I mean, what I was going to suggest was that I should we should see Only Lovers Left Alive because that was my 2014 movie that Brady's like, you should see that, and that I haven't seen. But the thing is, is that we're going to be doing our 2014 before then. So I'll just have to watch it on my own. Yeah. Uh, so what what are we going to do? Uh, maybe we should kick off with something from 2015, uh, even though I haven't seen there's, any. There's not much just yet. Um, <laughs> Paddington. <laughs> Let's all watch Paddington. Well, I mean, we're in March 2015. Like, what has come out? Oh, shoot. Hold on. There's There's some... There's a little bit of something, something, but let me uh, racking my brain. I I don't know. I haven't like I don't know if I've been to a movie theater this year. Right here, give me a sec. Tell tell me a fun story about something. Um, fun fun story, eh? Oh God, I can't even really think of anything. Fun Not right about now. the band. I mean, mostly I've been like just. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I've been starting to like in- deal with like my issues around bullying and stuff. Um, actually, you know, because we're both from Alamo and shit like that, and so you know, everybody gets picked on and blah blah blah. And uh, there's this whole thing about bullying nowadays. And um, I'm thinking about whenever I go back to Alamo. Like for some reason, this past couple weeks, I've been thinking about. Um, were you there? When we went with Daisy and my sister and uh, other folks as well to the piano bar. Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, okay, so you were there. Uh, yeah, I, I think you remember I was probably annoyed that night because, like, there was this guy who, like, out of the crowd, who doesn't even know me, like, kind of started picking on me. Like, I was trying to weave my way through the crowd to the front door. And then, like, he was like, honestly, how's this going to work, bro? And I was like, 
I'm pretty skinny, dude. Like, if you just take a step to your left, I can squeeze through. Like, I know it's crowded, but, like, I'm just saying, pardon me. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, and then, like, the guy follows me outside, and I'm smoking a cigarette on the front deck. And then, like, uh, he goes, like, hey, can you get this guy out of here? And then, like, the bouncer comes up. He's like, you can't smoke here. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, you got to you gotta get out of here. And I was like, oh, here, just let me put it out. And then the other guy was like, thank you. You know, and then like I talked to the bouncer. I'm like, I'm really sorry. I didn't know. I thought this was where he's, he's like, no, there's a place out back. He's like, no prob. I, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't mean to like totally pick on you. Right. And then, like, then the guy comes out back and like starts like talking shit. He's like, why are you smoking those cloves? Blah, 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 blah. I'm just like, I just don't understand why, like, whenever I'm in Alamo or Danville, like, it's like laser beam focus. Somebody like sees me and goes like, yep, that's the guy to pick on. It's like. Do I have a target on my back? Like, I'm a goddamn adult. And this doesn't happen to me in, like... Yeah. Emeryville or whatever, you know? Yeah, something in the water in that place. Yeah, it's kind of fucked up. Um, So that's my <laughs> that's my cheerful story <laughs> for this cheerful, cheerful podcast. All right. No, we've, we've kept it upbeat. Uh, uh, okay. You got a suggestion it, from this year? Yeah, if I suggested one, because uh, I know Tess wants to see this, and this seems to be unquestionably the best, most well-reviewed movie for the year so far, it would be the uh, horror film It, it Follows, uh, which is came out Sundance 2014, I think in the same time as The Babadook, and kind of with that movie is representing what maybe hopefully could be a little mini horror renaissance where horror movies are thoughtful and cool. Yeah, and, and actually, George Nace really wanted to be on this podcast. I think his n- somewhere in his top three is the Babadook. Nice. Um, because I was talking about the fact that we're going to do our top ten. Uh, he may or may not be interested in coming on if uh, if uh, we're not too crowded, you know, because we have guests and we like to yeah, bring we'll, everybody we'll... in. And but then we get in this little garage and. People, some people are wearing wireless mics. Some people are wearing this and that. So uh, we'll, we'll see if George is on next week. Um, however, yeah, uh, he really wanted to do it this week, but we, we our schedules just didn't match. Um, so we'll have George Nace on sometime soon, who's been a shout-out person at the end of the uh, the podcast many times. Yeah, no, um, good guy, George. Good guy, George, yes. Um, so at any rate, that's cool. I would like to suggest um, Grizzly Man. Grizzly Man. We've got all 2015 to watch 2015 movies. But how, however, I would I, w- I would like to vote for uh, 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 what there you said. I I see the cruel twist here. It's like I I have shot the grizzly or the man who is a grizzly. Grizzly yeah. Grizzly Man sounds like quite a horror movie. Okay, so you're you're voting on on Grizzly Man, vote and I'm voting for man. yours. So and uh, this is where Tess would have been really handy. Yeah, but, but she's, she's not here. Laid up. Uh, <laughs> so I guess what we'll have to do is we'll we'll do odds or evens. So oh, do you yeah. want odds or evens? Uh, I'll take odds. And we'll shoot. Uh, the odds are in my and favor. And we'll shoot two out of three. Okay. All right. One, two, two three. three. Go. Even. One, two, three. Even. Oh, I wanted. That was odd. Because I, I did one. You oh, you did, did two. one. I thought you did two. Yeah, you, I did okay. one. One, two, two, three. Oh, okay. Uh, I win. So that means, though. So it, it follows that we will watch It Follows. There you go. Logic. <laughs> I can't believe I got you on that. Uh, uh, this will be, be a great thing to look back on. Yeah, that'll be good. 
Indeed. Okay, so uh, three, two, one. Bobby Welch, theme song. Carnivorous couch, it happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rock. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, thingy. Yeah. And we're good to go.